the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, broken vows to sleep last night instead of, oh, one more page and then the lights go out. Tomorrow's mission is made from today's omission, mixed with a little coriander and Louisiana hot sauce. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time, podcast correspondent David F. Sherryrod discusses Mission Tomorrow, edited by the redoubtable Brian Thomas Schmidt, and also along are authors Robin Wayne Bailey, Jack McDevitt, Jack Skillingstead, and Brenda Cooper, authors of stories in the uh, this great new anthology, Mission Tomorrow, featuring tales of the future where NASA and government programs have nothing to do with going into space. But people go anyway for all sorts of reasons, some sane, some lucrative, and some wackadoodle. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Here's news. There are new fiction and nonfiction on the Bain.com website, as we have every month around mid-month. This time we have Imperium Resource, a new story by Jody Lynn Nye, set in the world of her Imperium books. The latest of these, Rhythm of the Imperium, will be a December trade paperback. These are Jody's Jeeves in Space books, featuring the redoubtable Lord Thomas Canego and his trusty aide and military minder, Parsons. Nonfiction this month is from Dr. Ted Roberts. This is Will Hollywood Ever Get It Right? and is all about real science versus Hollywood science. Which movies and shows get it right? Which hilariously kind of don't? And which are inadvertently amusing because they are trying but not quite succeeding? Ted Roberts is the popular science article pseudonym for neuroscientist Robert Hampson, whom we've interviewed a couple of times. He took part in our Religion and Science Fiction podcast uh, discussion back in December also. Imperium Resource and Will Hollywood Ever Get It Right are now available at Bain.com. Check them out. Hi everyone, it's David F. Shirod here. Today we're talking about the future of space travel, specifically human space travel in a world where NASA's supremacy has been diminished or extinguished. It's a concept explored in the 19 stories that make up the table of contents of Mission Tomorrow. The book is out now in trade paperback and of course ebook. And joining me to discuss it and the themes it explores is the editor, uh, Brian Thomas Schmidt. He is an author and Hugo-nominated editor of adult and children's science fiction and fantasy novels and anthologies. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received honorable mention on Barnes & Noble's year's best science fiction releases of 2011 and was followed by two sequels. As editor, his anthologies include Beyond the Sun, The Ray Gun Chronicles, and Space Battles. I actually talked with Brian here on the podcast a while back about another anthology he edited, or rather co-edited, with Jennifer Brozek. That was Shattered Shields, which was a um, collection of military fantasy stories, and it's great to be talking with him again. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be with you again, David. 
All right, also joining us is Robin Wayne Bailey. He is the author of numerous novels, including the best-selling Dragonkin series, The Frost Saga, Shadow Dance, and the Fritz Leiber-inspired Swords Against the Shadowland. He's written over 100 short stories, many of which are included in his two collections, Turn Left to Tomorrow and The Fantasticon, Tales of Wonder. He's former president of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and was a 2008 Nebula Award nominee. Uh, Robin, good to talk with you again. It's good to talk to you again also. I had a good time on our chat. We also have uh, Jack McDevitt on the line. Uh, he has been described by Stephen King as the logical heir to Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. He is the author of 21 novels, 12 of which have been Nebula finalists, and his novel Seeker won the award in 2007. In 2003, Omega received the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Uh, Jack, it is good to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure, David. Good to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Uh, we've got another Jack on the line with another Stephen King connection. Uh, Jack Skillingstead won Stephen King's On Writing Contest back in 2001, and since then has been selling regularly to science fiction markets. Much of his work has been collected in Are You There and Other Stories. Uh, his novel Life on the Preservation was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award. He has also been a finalist for the Theodore Sturgeon Award. Uh, Jack Skillingstead, uh, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And finally, we have Brenda Cooper on the line. Uh, she is a working futurist and a technology technology professional, as well as a science fiction writer. Uh, in addition to her several novels, her short fiction appears regularly in Analog and other venues. Her latest novel, The Edge of Dark, was released earlier this year. Uh, Brenda, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Brenda's the only one of us, David, that carries the official geek title. She's like the official geek for her city. So, you know, she outranks all of us, really. Well, that will come in handy here in our talk, I hope. Um, so, Brian, I'm going to start with you, since you're the, the ringleader here, the editor. Um I got to say, I kind of conflicted about this anthology in that it's it's a hopeful... Many of the stories are very hopeful and... Um, positive about the future of space travel, but it also kind of bummed me out because uh, the premise is that uh, the NASA uh, we kind of know and love or knew and loved uh, isn't around anymore in these in this future that we've you've kind of created here. Um, and you kind of acknowledge that in your introduction, um, your love for NASA. I guess my question is, why take that tack? And, you know, I, I, was, I was reminded of Ray Bradbury's uh, quote about, he says, I'd he said he didn't try to predict the future, he tried to prevent it. So is is there an ulterior motive to maybe um, kind of goose people into supporting NASA again with, with you know, with these stories? Or is, is NASA's time past and these are stories uh, positing a, a bright future without NASA? I'm, a, I'm like NASA's number one fan. And I, I, they, they put a call out last week for people to become Martian astronauts. And I'm like, dude, I've got to either, i got to lose a bunch of weight and I got to lose about 10 years, 20 years, so I can do that. <laughs> because I'm so excited. I cannot tell you. But I got a little depressed when we kind of knocked out some of NASA's funding. But I also realized that, 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 that and that's part of the impetus for this anthology. But the thing is, the, the sense of wonder that we used to have when I was a kid about space travel, when all of us were kids. You know, my, my grandmother kept a scrapbook, and I have it, of every single NASA launch up through the mid-1980s. I have clippings of all the, you know, all the Mercury and all the Apollo and all, half the, you know, the early space shuttle missions. 
is because we were so excited. It was like appointment television to watch it. But what happened is it became it became so regular. It kind of got a little bit ordinary after a while. Not everybody wanted to watch every loss. Not everybody started. People stopped thinking about how extraordinary it was that we could do this. And I still think it's fantastically awesome that we can go into space and we can send people to space. And I also happen to know quite a few people who work at NASA who we talk about the science and technology that comes out of this stuff that you don't even connect. Like, you know, the tiles on the space shuttle, the heat tiles, are being used to create better insulation for more energy-efficient homes. Microwaves were partially developed by NASA. You've got a whole bunch of things that affect everyday life, and the list can go on and on and on, that came about because of what NASA does. So this is, this is not meant to be a negative anthology at all. It's meant to be a positive. It's absolutely meant to say, this is cool. Remember where it all started, not only for science fiction, but for humankind going into space. And let's let's continue to be excited about this and hopeful, and let's continue to, to want to explore and work. And, you know, and we should say NASA is, is completely uh, gone in some of these stories and in others, um, not so much. It's maybe not the, the only player on the field uh, like they were, or, well, I guess they never were. I guess always the Russians were involved. But, you know, like they once were, but... Um, they're still they're still in the game in at least some of these stories. Uh, in the book, we've got uh, we see other government space agencies taking the lead in a few stories, China and India, for example. Um, but in many of the stories, there's a notion that private enterprise will be uh, the way forward. And I wondered if anyone wants to talk about that. Is that where we've seen this already starting with SpaceX um, and I guess Virgin Galactic? Uh, is that, do we think as, as a group, what do you guys think? Is that a, um, is that going to be the future of space travel? Uh, I think it's going to be a new future of space tourism, but I don't think will be, private industry will be um, in space in a big way until they can make some kind of a profit. And the only profit to be made right now by private industry seems to be tourism. Well, um, Brenda, your, your story ha- uh, is set a l- maybe a little bit further than some of the other folks we're talking to, um, although Robin Wayne Bailey's, I guess, is, is not a, a super near future. But um, you've got an asteroid miner in your uh, story. Did you? I mean, I'm assuming you maybe did some research into some of the projections on that. Could you talk about that and how perhaps if, uh, you know, we could get to some of these... Um, resources that are just literally floating out there in space, um, how that might affect uh, future space exploration? Um, I can take a stab at that. I'm sitting in Seattle, and in Seattle there is a company, I cannot remember the name right now, but they've already incorporated that's actually planning on getting um, and doing asteroid mining. The name asteroid is in the the company name. And they're, um, I think, beginning to get well-funded. I'm surrounded by companies whose founders, like Jeff Bezos, are uh, part of the commercial space um, area. So I actually think that probably large-scale occupation of space is going to be driven very largely by the private space industry. Um, I think there's still a role for NASA in exploration, I hope for a very long time, and probably in support. Um, for a lot of the first missions. But remember, NASA didn't even build a way back to the shuttle. They went out and contracted that. I mean, one of the, one of the things that is an issue of reality for all of us is 
you know, I was joking about the whole age and weight thing, which is actually a reality of being an astronaut for NASA at least. But the reality of it is there's a cost factor that is ridiculous at this point. And so none of us, I don't think, have the $20 million or $50 million it's going to take to pay Russia or somebody to take us up into space. So the reality of it is that there's several reasons why I think if, if they can make it manageable and they can create a place to go, people are going to want to go on private space jobs if it becomes affordable. But it's going to have to be more affordable, and there's going to have to be, you know, several times. Some people, you know, there, there's a lot of people who will go, but they don't want to they don't want to go forever and not come back, too. So that, I mean, there's lots of different factors that I think make room in the picture for a lot of different options as space travel can become more, I don't want to say normalized in a sense, I want to say more, there's more opportunities for it, more, more ways to go. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, government funding can, cannot provide all those ways, but private funding can. David, I, I have to admit I've gotten kind of frustrated. I got my start with space travel with Flash Gordon in, the, uh, in 1940 in the old movie serial. Uh, and I remember they, uh, you know, Zarkov built a rocket ship in his garage, and it went to Mars, and it went to Mongo. Uh, it had no airlock, and it had no washroom. I don't know how they managed all that, but uh, you know, the, the rocket ship worked. I fell in love with rocket ships, and I, you know, the thing, the thing that's interesting is that you know, 1945, the war ended, and I was just old enough to be kind of aware that that it was over. And it looked as if we had relentless, quiet ground ahead to do whatever we wanted. Science fiction writers at that period all assumed that we were going to be on the moon in the 1960s. Uh, we'll be on Mars in the 1970s. We've got, of course, the uh, what was the, the, the Arthur C. Clarke story that wound up in a film, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. We went to, in the story, if you read the story, he went to Saturn. In 2001, and none of that happened. And the reason it happened, it seems, I, I guess, I'm not sure yet. Uh, I do know that it happened largely because we didn't have any money, but I have a suspicion that even if we had money, we might not have done anything. But uh, we got into this much more gruesome world that, you know, in 1945, the world looked pretty good, I suspect, to everybody. Uh, there was a lot of wreckage, but it looked as if the fighting was over. And look at this mess that we've got now and have had for the last 50 years. Uh, and I think the, the NASA thing maybe would work if we could get funding for it. But it's hard to see where money's going to come from right now. So, I, you know, that leads me to think that, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be private industry if it's going to be anybody at all. Got a little bit of perspective. Uh, the, the Wright brothers only flew in 1903. So it's been a little over 100 years, and we've now flown to, you know, not with human spaceflight, but we have flown at least probes, things that can take cameras, things that can land on Mars throughout the solar system. We've sent some things outside of the solar system, all in what is actually really uh, just barely a period longer than a single human life. This is kind of an old chestnut, but I think it's something it keeps getting brought up. Um, in uh, Jack McDevitt's story, Excalibur, uh, it's about a reporter um, investigating what seems to be maybe a, a cover-up of a NASA mission. Um, 
that never was, and I don't want to give away too much more than that. But um, the reporter is, he's kind of a true believer to some extent, and uh, he's talking to his wife, and uh, she's maybe not so much so. She says, uh, we can't repair roads and bridges, and there's no money for public schools. How could they possibly justify billions for space travels? Um, and, you know, and another character says, you know, instead of going up to, into space, we went into Iraq instead, um, again, instead. And uh, we talk about, there's in other stories, there's talk of these dangers. Uh, Brenda's Cooper's story, she talks about the dangers of, of asteroid mining. And in Robin Wayne Bailey's story, safety is just a constant, it's set, set on Pluto, and it's just a constant problem. And so how do you guys address folks, I think we're all believers in space travel that are talking here, that say, uh, why waste money on this? Why spend money on this when we can't fix things here and it's just too dangerous. Uh, how do we, what's the response? Um, is, is, or are they right? Is it too expensive and too dangerous? Actually, I use the same excuse for, for financing space travel that I use for financing AIDS research. Every field needs a cutting edge um, because that cutting edge drags so much practical technology into the hands of ordinary everyday people. Brian talked earlier about the heat tiles providing new insulation materials for our homes and stuff like that. And, of course, everybody knows by now that Teflon came as a result of research, uh, space research. And same thing with AIDS. We've, we've achieved so many medical breakthroughs in cancer and MS and other illnesses because AIDS had a kind of cutting edge of medical research. So for every dollar we spend on, on cutting-edge science, we get much more back. And if we could make people understand that with space travel, we'd be a lot further ahead than we are right now. I kind of think we need a different... You know, the old motivation in the... You know, a lot of the original motivation was to beat the Russians. You know, that was really sure. it. we gotta beat, We got to beat the Russians. I think we're past that now. And I think that is no longer going to impress anybody except for maybe a few diehards that are still afraid of Russia. I mean, we've got to have a, we've got to have a better reason to go. And I think more public, more public awareness of it. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm just saying, Robin, that I think that, that there's, there, the, 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 when I go to the, the national history of space and things, there's so much emphasis on that competition. I think that there are other motivations that weren't as publicized as that. But I think now we have different reasons why we need to go that motivate people differently, and I think that's part of the issue. People have to see the value of it in a different way. I agree, and I, I hope that, you know, and, and money money's going to be part of it, and that's fine, uh, but there's certainly a bigger reason to go than money. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think it's really who, I, I think we're going to find out who we really are uh, in, the, in the coming decades, based largely on space travel. Uh, you know, if we stay home, uh, I, you know, I just, I just can't imagine it. You know, we're really going to sit tight on this, this one little planet over the next few centuries, and not, not it, we may find that it's simply physically impossible to go anywhere seriously. But I don't know. Even that, uh, uh, you know, even if we can't get out of the solar system, you know, there's, we might discover that we can actually live on, uh, you know, on, on asteroids, not on asteroids, but on, on space stations and places. I, I, you know, you talk about things to do. I would love to be able to take a trip out to Saturn and sit out there and look at the rings. 
Well, there's also, you know, there's also a sense of accomplishment, too, you know. I think a sense of man, man is bored, and man doesn't want to stay in one place. Man wants to be moving constantly, too. I mean, Jack Skillington's story touches on this with tribute. You know, her, her, her brother died in, on a trip, so she wants to go out there and kind of finish what he started and keep going on with it, and no matter what the risk. I mean, I think there's a certain element of that involved in all this, too, as far as how humans are motivated. I think the, the objection to the risk of man's basement is a, a little bit of a straw man. Since it's something like 40,000 people are killed on the highways in the United States every year. So it's pretty risky just driving to the grocery store. And all you get from that is, you know, a loaf of bread. So we need to, we need to be sending people because that is the, it's the frontier. And in terms of, um, in terms of NASA funding, it's driven uh, obviously, c- congressional approval and all that, but it's it was driven in the 1960s not just by the race against um, Russia, but the idea of going someplace as opposed to just going into orbit and going around in circles. So that fired everybody's imagination and put pressure on our politicians to keep funding this thing. So once we were there and they were just doing some science. And if it seemed routine to uh, your average American, people walk into that. So maybe the idea is we do need to keep pushing out. And I don't know that I don't know if private industry is going to be up for um, the kinds of multi-billion-dollar investment to send the first people to Mars, because there is so much money, and they'll get so little return from it initially. Whereas NASA or nation any nation with with the, the the kind of finances you can you can get from taxes enough, they can do it. They can more afford to do it, and they should be kind of on the the steer point of exploration. At least I think so. I think in order to make that work, though, we're going to have to get rid of some of the enormous debt that we have right now. That's that's the big problem. We've been. We're not, unfortunately, we haven't been spending our money on, on uh, highways and schools. Uh, we're spending it, uh, in the, seems like, in the Middle East, by and large. And I, I don't see any side of that going away. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about motivation. I was just at the 100-Year Starship Symposium, which is uh, was originated, started by DARPA, and run by Mae Jemison, who was the first, uh, black astronaut to actually go into space, black woman astronaut to go into space. And one of the things that they talked about is the uh, many, many things that the Kepler um, uh, Kepler thing has been able to find. And they've been looking for specifically planets that are in the Goldilocks zone. And they have found 4,696 candidate planets just in our general area, as, which are places that we could potentially either find life, move to, explore, or otherwise be interested in. They've actually confirmed over 1,000 of those. I think the number is 1,030. And there's a few new telescopes going up in a short period of time that may give us better visibility to, th- to these things. And we may be able to fire our imagination with some of the new scientific information that we're beginning to get. A startling piece of information recently that may or may not turn out to be valid, but that's 
uh, the, the report that there were constructions, apparently uh, artificial constructs of some sort, uh, in, in close to one of the stars that are not not too far from here. Yeah. They, they were talking about there being sunless, looking like something that maybe a civilization would put up to get power from the sun. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think actually talking about motivations, too, I think, you know, uh, Jack Skillingston's right. I think, you know, the reality is that, that I think corporations are going to be more motivated by making use of what already has been opened and that NASA and government are going to have to push it further. We're going to have to break the bounds. You're not going to find a whole lot of people like, you know, uh, what's his last name? Richard from uh, Virgin Galactic, who might actually spend money to do, you know, extra things or something. And these guys that that have that kind of vision and are willing to blow their money on it, they want to get the, the ultimate, they want to get as much maximum reward as they can, blow it. Yeah, I, I guess maybe that kind of ties, we kind of hit on some of this um, with, but in, um, I keep coming back to Jack McDevitt's story. Um, and again, I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of try to keep it a spoiler free, but um, there's this idea that uh, maybe there's something that would goose everyone into wanting to go back. And, uh, you know, we've recently discovered water on Mars. Um, we talked about possibly there's something that looks like maybe there's an artificial construct in space. Um, so we've hit on a few of these things, but I'm just wondering... To you guys, what is is there anything specifically that that would do it? Um, if we found evidence of life on Mars, would that be the thing that would actually get us there? Um, any thoughts on that? You know, what what would it? What could it? What could be the thing if there is one thing that that uh, spurs this on, this new space race on? I want to say no. That um, life on Mars, if it's microbial in nature, you know, people. The problem I think NASA has run into is a problem we're going to keep running into, that dreamers run NASA and dreamers built NASA, but NASA is funded by politicians. And just finding microbial life on Mars or water on Enceladus or recently ice water on Pluto, um, these things aren't going to drive us out into space as long as politicians and the public, it, honestly, just the public, um, are more concerned with hunger here or uh, the everyday needs that that, uh, that government is best designed to take care of. Um, and I don't see I don't see that changing at any any time soon. But it takes something really big, I think, for us to, to have a, a government, a popular government. I just say popular push back into space again. People are more concerned I mean, about think, the cost of oil. I think I think yeah. I think, you know, energy efficiency might be something that would motivate people, but I really think you're right, Robin. I think really it's more like when aliens that are actually sentient beings that can talk to us show up, man, that's gonna motivate us. <laughs> I and mean, that's the kind of big yep. that it's gonna take. Well we should point out, um <clears throat> we all you know I was too young to to be there when it happened but you know we look back on the uh you know um mercury and apollo missions and think man that's when everyone was behind this but in fact um i don't remember the exact figure but it's not like 98 percent of people were in favor of going to the moon in polls you know it was it still didn't have a huge 
you know, even 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 at the height of this, it didn't have a huge huge approval rating. So maybe we don't uh, maybe we don't need uh, everyone on board. We just need some either <clears throat> some politician who gets behind it, or I don't know what it would be. Um, but <laughs> in our fractured society, yeah. I don't. I, I wonder if we'll ever have anything called everybody on board ever again. <laughs> I, don't think, I, mean, I don't think I don't think that's ever been a realistic goal, though. I mean, realistically, David. But I, you know, you're right. Sure. I, 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 everybody on board. I think it, you know, it's everybody who has uh, has enough support and influence and knows the right people is always the way it's going to work. I mean, we've got people here I'm, who still don't even believe we've been to the moon. Right. Yeah. There's that. Um, I guess one another thing we talked about, and uh, I don't really guess any of your stories particularly hit on this, but there were a few in the anthology that did, which is um, other governments, uh, specifically China and India. I remember India just sent a probe to Mars a few months back, and uh, I was listening to an interview with, I don't know who it was, I can't remember now, but you know, they're going there, you know, his feeling was it because they're a developing nation and they want to prove that they can kind of run with the big dogs, right? You know, that they have arrived as a world power or are arriving as a world power um, in the, in a similar way to how we, you know, were duking it out with Russia and, and that spurred a lot of our movement. Um, so is the, uh, is that going to play? How, how much do you think is that going to play in? Uh, is, is China going to be the country to plant the flag on Mars rather than uh, America? Ben Bova's story kind of posited that question a little bit in the anthology. Right. There was a, ra a race to the asteroids, like Clinton's story. You know, there's a race to the asteroids to to tag them so you could claim mineral rights. Was kind of a theme of, of Ben's story. And you know, I I have spent a lot of time in Brazil, and I've read a lot about the Brazilians' effort to have a space program. And I can tell you that they're motivated by the very same thing that you're talking about that India is motivated by, and that I'm sure China is motivated by. And pretty much any country that has been considered a third world or a lesser world or an other world country and not a major player would be motivated by to put themselves on the playing field and say, hey, you can't dismiss us anymore. We we have this capability. We have entered, we, we, we've leveled the playing field to somewhat. And I think that's certainly going to be a big motivator no matter what else happens for anybody. Uh, they also want access. I mean, you know, look, in Brazil, one of the big things is, you know, they, they do a lot of... Um, uh, basically open sourcing software and open sourcing uh, the drugs. I mean, they you know, they basically said, we don't care about your patent and your trademark. Our people need to be able to afford this, so we're going to manufacture it ourselves cheap, and we don't really care if you don't like it. Well, I think there's there's some level of wanting access to the science, and if they get it themselves, then they control it, as opposed to always having to rely on somebody else, too, that's part of it. It's an interesting point about the. I think it was either the Chinese or the Russians that announced recently that they plan to send um, astronauts to uh, to the moon. So the Apollo missions are such a quintessentially American story in the popular imagination, at least the popular imagination of Americans. So when the Chinese and the Russians and the Indians start showing up on the moon and pushing outward, I wonder what kind of effect this will have on the mood and uh, sense of competition or whatever it might be that, that would rise up in the United States and pressure politicians to allocate more funds 
to get to Mars, for instance, or, or whatever the next thing is? I'm pretty sure it will spark a lot of competition, and we shouldn't underestimate the absolute fear of any weaponized space where we aren't the owners of the biggest guns, because I think that's actually a potential driver as well and relate to people like China, Russia, and India, um, all of whom are nuclear powers, being able to get into space. It's kind of cynical, but I think you're I think you're right, and I think that you know we could pitch this to Congress that going into space will give us a bigger gun. They'll probably just dump money onto it. There is they, a, they'll, they'll There's a space museum in Hutchinson, Kansas. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. It's really a remarkable place, um, but it is also one of the most depressing places I've ever visited. Um, it, details the development of all our rockets, all of our space programs and everything, and traces everything right back to weapons of war. Uh, and you have to wonder if there's any way we can ever break out of that pattern. Well, I'm sitting out here in Palm Springs just two nights ago. You may have seen on your televisions um, reports of a strange bright light in the sky here that had people all excited. And it was, in fact, a uh, missile launch from one of the Air Force bases nearby here. Um, and it happened to uh, pass over Palm Springs in such a way that we were getting the tail exhaust, the, the bright light from the, the missile, as it exited away from us. So it just looked like not a bright light traveling across the sky, but it was almost like another small moon there for quite a long time. But it was, it was brought home, at least for me, that space travel, as far as government is involved, is only is always going to be about weapons and about war. Uh, our technology, our advances in, in so many of our advances in space science come as a result of weapons research uh, or from money uh, allocated to the military. And I don't see that changing at any time soon. So this is why in my story. I talk a little bit about the limits of government and what government can actually do, what government is responsible for, and maybe what they're responsible for does not involve long-term space exploration. That's got to come from the private sector, I think, uh, and be driven by... The... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Robin. I was just going to say, you watch the Middle Eastern countries get, get a hold of their nuclear bombs, and you'll see the government motivated to get us off the planet. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing I think. That's the kind of thing without, that would motivate. I mean, I, that's where we are. Without Sputnik, we would never have had Mercury. Uh, you know, it's, it's just always a, a sort of a, a conditioned response, I guess. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have had a space program without the V two German V two, uh, and half of our space program was assembled for us by German scientists that were essentially snatched out of Germany by allied forces. You think about um, what, you know, several hundred years ago, exploration of the new world, as, as we call it, um, and it was tended to be motivated by the two things we're talking about, uh, money and uh, getting a tactical advantage over the other countries, right? <laughs> um, so perhaps space won't be any different. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just, just had a thought, when, we, when some of us were kids, 
me, for instance, and I was following the Mercury and Apollo, and I was attracted to it by the wonder of it, the science fictional aspect of traveling in space at all or going to the moon. But, of course, the adults that were actually involved in all this, it's, as you say, it was a progression from the V-2 rockets and then this competition with Russia. A lot of fear involved and um, beat the Russians to the moon and all this stuff. But now other generations that viewed space flight, practical space flight back in the 60s, they've grown up, like I have, with the wonder of it rather than the weaponizing of it. So... I'm a little bit optimistic that things could maybe move away from the weapons and, and the wonder and the excitement of exploration might actually get the upper hand eventually. Well, and, you know, whether you see that in uh, the government, but you talk about, we've been talking about Elon Musk a lot and SpaceX, but uh, his other company, there it is, Tesla, I couldn't remember for a second, he opened all the patents up that Tesla owned for batteries and, and electric vehicles, you know, in, in the hopes that, you know, if someone can get, you know, someone can see something in that that they don't and can improve it and this will be, benefit everyone. And I think some of the greatest scientific discoveries we've, we've had have been through scientists all around the world working on the same problem and preparing notes and doing that. And I don't think space travel and space exploration should be or will be any different. I may be able to provide some good news here, actually. Um, two weeks ago, I was invited to the uh, Space Forum, which was conducted at it's conducted annually at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Uh, ben Bova was also there, Kevin Anderson, Doug Beeson, and what they were trying to do, the, the, generally what they do is they have people come in and talk about the technic the technicalities, the technology of space travel with the you know, with the students so with. Um, but what they wanted what they wanted the panel of science fiction guys to do was to inspire the the um the cadets about getting into space about doing exploration about the real reasons to go there that to get beyond the military aspects of it and uh my impression was that though, first of all that the uh, the program they have out there for the cadets is uh now, I'm not I'm not I'm not strong on technology, but it looks to me as if a lot of those cadets are I, I have the distinct impression that they are doing a first class job with those kids. Um and I also I had a chance to talk to a number of the cadets also, and they are enthusiastic not about weaponizing space, but about the kinds of things we're talking about here right now. Uh I think we are producing another generation. I, I kind of suspect if we're going to make this succeed, one day people are going to look back on this as the golden age when we got off-world and went out and showed who we were and what we could do. And uh, now we're all going to be part of that. It's really kind of a nice thing to think about. And I think those kids are going to, I hope, are going to be pushing the envelope for us. That's another motive of the book, too, is for me to say let's inspire people to think of this as as something we should do, we can do, and, and, and go far beyond uh, what we've done and not stop, too. So that's what Mission Tomorrow is all about. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that. I mean, I, just a comment. I don't guess I have a question, but um, I'm I enjoy dystopias. I enjoy post-apocalypse. I enjoy zombies. But it's starting to get a little. It's starting to wear on me, right? And I think it's uh, I, one thing I loved about this collection is for all the danger, for all, there's a lot of death in these stories. 
um, for all the, uh, you know, maybe disappointment that things didn't work out with NASA or with this government or that government or this private industry is still a very optimistic book. And it's a book that is saying human beings can use technology and our um, abilities to improve ourselves, to improve the world, to accomplish something, not well, we're all headed for the edge of the cliff, and we're you'll you'll be lucky if you die before we go over. You know, which is what is is so popular. It seems to be so popular, and so um, hopefully books like this. And um, in uh, it's not to say there are not other upbeat books, but you know, books that present a positive uh, positive path. You know, and inspire a positive path. Um, you know, maybe we're getting out of this dystopian cycle a little bit i don't know well i mean there james gunn and uh and uh chris mckittrick who actually have stories in this have a magazine uh at after that they do at the center for the study of science fiction at lawrence kansas at ku university of kansas which is really close to me and they told me that when they first opened for submissions what surprised them more than anything was the amount of positive stories they were getting so i mean i think I, i'm one of those people that tends to Try, try to swing things toward the positive more often than not because I enjoy that kind of thing too. It inspires me, and I get a little bit down sometimes on, on so much negativity. But I also, I mean, look at The Martian, which, by the way, I, I got the privilege of being the first editor on The Martian, Andy Weir's book. And you know, oh, wow. the thing that, that, that I loved about that book was that here's a guy against all odds who says, I am not going to lay here and die. I am going to fight to survive. And he has to use every bit of his knowledge and ingenuity to try to find ways to, as he says, science the crap out of it and save his life. And and so I think that kind of thing, that's why that movie is so popular, that's why the book's so popular, because it's like, look, man, if you're stuck in an impossible situation, you can give up or you can do what, what, what this guy did and you can say, I'm going to find a way to be Mark Watney and get myself out of the situation or I'm, or I'm going to die trying. And I think that that's part of the inspiration that goes along with these stories. That's part of what has made The Martian such a huge hit. And I think that, you know, there's still room for those kind of stories in, in science fiction, and I have no doubt. You know, what is uh, what the nature of, I've written a lot of gloomy stuff, but when I, when I decided to write this story for your anthology, um, and it's near future and it's space exploration, you know, the people that are doing that are not gloomy depressives. They're optimistic people. They have to be because they, yeah, they, yeah. they have to they do these extraordinary things. And they tend to be people that are operating at a very high level of, of intellect and, and courage. So writing about, writing about uh, near future space exploration in any of its forms, you're almost forced to have a sense of optimism, and your characters have to have some kind of a sense of optimism, or at least a, a belief that it's worth doing or that they can do it. And that moves you out of a little bit out of the uh, dystopian future, because the dystopian future isn't going to be doing anything like that. It's true. Well, you know, when I gave you guys guide, when I gave you guys guidelines, I never told you you had to be positive either, as I recall. I never said you had to be positive. I just kind of left it up to you. But you did, and but you just sort of, um, I guess it won't become that way. Uh, like I said, I've yeah. written a lot of stuff and my tortured, lonely guy character and all this stuff. But writing about um, my characters in this story, even though 
there's a lot of problems and things going haywire, you're, the, the people themselves that are, are trying to solve these problems and, and trying to um, move in this hostile environment are optimistic people that they have to be. Yeah, absolutely. I was just saying that because, I mean, you know, David commented on the optimism of the anthology. It's not, it's not something I necessarily set out to do, although I'm very happy with the outcome of it. It's something that the writers did themselves overall for the most part, and I think that's great. I mean, I think that's also a sign that this kind of topic inspires us to think positively in a lot of ways, just automatically. I mean, like Jack said, you don't have a choice because of the kind of characters you have to write, but I also think there's, a, there's one of the reasons we're all writing science fiction is there's a part of us that has that optimism and that drive, too, that, that it brings out when you do this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, at at its core, I guess, I mean, even pretty bleak science fiction, uh, there it posits that there will be a future, right? So there is a is a, uh, and we're thinking about it, and and again, it's not necessarily. I mean, I think of Bradbury who wrote a lot of uh, dark stuff, but he said, you know, he said, I'm not writing that, I'm not predicting it, I'm trying to prevent it, I'm trying to scare people into not having that happen, and um, so yeah, I think. One of the things uh, that I like about science fiction is that there is a, a certain amount of optimism baked into it that you really almost can't remove. Um, and especially, as you were saying, in, in near-future space travel, uh, it's got to have a little bit of a um, hopeful feel to it because it, it presumes that we got at least that far, right? So, Even if you present a gloomy face, you're about to be kind of optimistic, otherwise you wouldn't be spending all this time writing books and stories, which requires a effort and um, What are you saying? You don't want to sit around to rest the house yourself every day? All right, well, I'm, I think we just about got it. Um, anyone, um, any final thoughts from anyone that we didn't hit on that you think we should, or can, should we wrap it up? Um. So are we all invited back from Mission Earth 2? Uh, Mission Mars. God, I do. Well, yeah. uh, I hope there is one, because I'd love to do another one. <laughs> I want to say thanks for um, letting me play. Both It was really fun to write for this anthology, and it's been fun to be on this show. So thanks a bunch, and thanks to Bain Books and Brian. I'll say I'd like to leave at least my portion of this with a quote that I think was... Arthur C. Clarke's, and it was Clark, I believe, who said the biggest surprise of the 20th century was not that we went to the moon, but that we stopped going to the moon. I'd like to see that plastered all over billboards across the world. All right. Well, and on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I think we all agree here that uh, we would like to see some movement outward. Uh, we have been talking about Mission Tomorrow. It is a collection, or I should say an anthology, of uh, space travel, near-future space travel stories, uh, edited by Brian Thomas Schmidt. It is out now from Bain. You can get it wherever uh, books are sold, and also on the web in ebook form. Uh, I want to thank all my guests, uh, Brian Thomas Schmidt, Jack Skillingstead, Jack McDevitt, Brenda Cooper, and Robin Wayne Bailey. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank, thank you, David. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky 
is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 16 Cleaning the toy was an unimaginable pain. The two zombies had crapped and pissed everywhere. Not just on the floor, but on the seats and walls. Stacy had taken over checking the electronics and engineering, while Sophia did an inventory of stores, which left Faith and Steve to clean up, ripping up the carpet and ripping out the seats. The fair line wasn't going to be nearly as comfortable when they were done, but it was going to be livable. The bunks in the port cabin were ruined, but they were the same size as the ones in the Mile 7, so they could be switched out. It was mostly a matter of ripping out the fabric and then application of elbow grease. Steve took a break after two hours and went up to the helm. The seats there were just as messed up as the rest of the saloon, but Stacy had ripped them out, stuffed in some pillows, and started to work on the electronics. Figuring it out? Steve asked. The console was so much more complicated than the hunters, he found it intimidating. Fortunately, Tina's father was detail-oriented, Stacy said. They are manuals for everything. He wrecked a couple of the screens, but they were for peripheral systems. The whole thing is networked, and it was mostly the secondaries that were damaged. So yes, figuring it out. Here's one thing that you'll find interesting. Given our conversation last night, she flipped through a touchscreen menu on one of the screens, then brought up one that was a map of the Atlantic, a false color image of weather. What's that? Steve asked. Tina's dad was a techie, Stacy said. It's a weather satellite image. A file copy? Steve asked. No, Stacy said. Current. The GOES for the Atlantic, and here, she said, changing screens, that's North America. We've sort of got weather reports, Steve said, sighing in relief. Sort of, Stacy said. All it gives us is the satellite. I can't believe it's still transmitting, Steve said. They're still transmitting. I thought they'd have to have ground stations. I guess it's like the GPS, Stacy said, shrugging. That should have gone down with Boulder. Didn't. Secret of the universe, I guess. But then there's this, she added, bringing up a screen filled with red dots. Okay, lots of red, Steve said. That's bad. Little context, Stacy said, zooming out. As she did, the outline of the North American continent came into view. The dots were in the Atlantic, and they were everywhere. Distress beacons? Steve asked. Two different types, Stacy said. Three, really. One is EPIRBs, referring to emergency position indicator radio beacons. The other is AIS. AIS, Steve asked. 
Automated indicator system, Stacy said, hitting a control. Most of the indicators disappeared. AIS is a system on large vessels. Those are big ships or boats that are in distress. Jesus, Steve said, shaking his head. I didn't realize there were so many ships at sea at any time. He leaned in and looked at something. What are those clusters? I wondered the same thing, Stacy said, zooming in on Bermuda. There were a cluster of distress beacons along its southern shores. Those are run aground. Seen enough of those. Every time they had run inside of shore, there had been ships and boats run aground. One time, they even saw what looked like a submarine. It was partially submerged, and it might have been the bottom of a boat turned turtle. But it looked like a sub, and not an American one. EPIRBs are going to be lifeboats, Steve said. We might find survivors on those. And then there's the third system, Stacy said, zooming in on their position and hitting the menu again. You know that emergency GPS thingy on the Hunter? Right, Steve said. Push the button on the radio for five seconds and it sends out your location. Is that AIS? No, Stacy said. That's digital selective calling. And that is these. How far? Steve said, looking at the screen. There were at least 20 indicators on the screen. That's 50 miles, Stacy said. She pointed to an indicator at the bottom. 24 DSC in 100 miles. And, she touched another control, and more dots popped up. 16 EPIRBs, 4 AIS. So, there. Boats and potential survivors. It's going to take all day to get this boat even vaguely livable, Steve said. Then cross-loading. After that, we'll get to the real work. Thank you, milady. That would have taken me days, and I'd have been tearing my hair out. That's why you have me around, my charming knight, Stacy said, patting him on the arm. I'd kiss you, but then I'd have to take off my respirator. And from the little bit that's getting through, you don't want to smell this, Steve said. Or me. And that is what saltwater showers are for. Steve took off his respirator and took a whiff. Ugh, he said, shaking his head. Still stinks. What did we miss? I think it's just baked in, Sophia said, grimacing. I think we're just going to have to get used to it, Stacy said. Once we get moving, we'll get some of the forward hatches open and air it out. Maybe that will help. Hopefully, Steve said. Well, it's as good as it's going to get for now, and people are waiting. Time to crossload. What are those? Tina said, wrinkling her brow at the small and obviously heavy cases. Ammo, Faith said. Bullets. You sure got a lot, Tina said. She'd asked if she could help, but had been told to just keep building her strength. She still could barely totter around. Not as much as we used to have, Faith said, hefting two cases of 762 by 39. And I think we're going to need lots more if Dad's going to seriously clear every boat in the Atlantic. Can you do that? Tina asked, following along behind as Faith carried the cases up on deck. One boat at a time, Faith said. But I'm going to rebel if I also have to clean them up.
Sophia sounded the bullhorn as they pulled up to the inflatable life raft. There was no response, but they hadn't really expected any. They could see a zombie on board. So how do we handle this? Faith asked. She was rigged up and had her respirator on. Carefully, Steve said, drawing his forty-five. He fired twice, missing both times. The combination of the roll of the boat and the lifeboat, called catenary, was something he was still getting used to. It wasn't something he'd trained for in the Paris or since. He hit the zombie on the third try. It clawed at the wound in its stomach and dropped back into the lifeboat. Mark this one for later, Steve said. He'll bleed out or die of sepsis. We'll clear it later. She, Faith said. Easier for me to just call them all he or it, Steve said, waving to Sophia. Next bacon. I don't think anybody's home, Faith said. The lifeboat was much more substantial. There was a deck aft and a solid covered area with portholes. It was marked Carnival Cruise Lines 4416, which meant that some cruise ship had, not surprisingly, ordered abandoned ship. The one problem, indicated as Sophia had circled the boat, was that there was a hatch and it was shut, which meant anything could be inside. Get the grapnel, Steve said. We'll see. Moving from the toy to the lifeboat in armor was unhappy making. The waves had increased, probably because of a distant storm, and Steve had to be careful jumping from one boat to the other. If he went in the drink, the combination of armor and equipment would carry him down fast. We need to figure out life vests for this or something, Steve said as he landed on the deck of the lifeboat. He tapped the hatch with the butt of his saiga and waited. He was fully expecting a zombie to hit the hatch running. He opened the hatch and looked inside, then stepped back, turned to the side, took off his respirator, and puked over the side of the raft. After a bit, he spit to clear his mouth, put his respirator back on, and entered the cabin. There were shots from the interior. Steve hurried back out, unhooked the grapnel, and crossed back to the toy. What were you shooting? Faith asked. The deck, Steve said. I think that's one of those no-sink holes, but it was the best I could do. I pulled the EPIRB before I shot. Hopefully, nobody else will have to see what I just saw. 1436, 26 July, EPIRB, 1164-598. Location, 33.797409-70. Point nine two seven seven three four. Four dead, no survivors. 1623, 26 July, EPIRB, 2487450. Location, 33.797326-70.926289. Two KIA, no survivors. 0814, 27 July. DSC. Cost estimate, 45-foot sport fisher. Location, 33.797298-70.926327. 187-2KIA. No survivors. Cleared. Disabled. Salvaged materials, fuel, water, sea inventory. Scuttled.
EPIRB, Sophia said from the helm. Looks like one of those good lifeboats. I hate those, Faith said. I'm getting to hating this whole idea. There are survivors, Steve said. He was starting to realize what luck finding Tina on their first boarding had been. And it's not about how many dead we find, but how many alive. If we find anyone alive, Faith said. Faith? Stacy said from the galley. Well, I keep getting rigged up, Faith said. And for what? There's nobody. I survived, Tina said. She was carefully cutting up a black fin they'd caught earlier in the day. They always had a line running behind the boat. I'm sorry, Tina, Faith said. I'm just frustrated. What you're doing is important, Tina said. You don't know what it's like, thinking somebody is going to come and they never do. She paused and wiped her eyes. And then you did. Faith, you're a miracle to somebody. You're a miracle to me. You just have to keep looking. Horn, Sophia said a minute later. She'd started to slow to come alongside. The horn blasted, then blasted again. Bloody hell, Sophia said. Survivors. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast correspondent David F. Sharirod and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an imminent kaboom leading to a vacuum-laden future in the microgravity of dreams. And many thanks, plaudits, and a coupon book full of opportunities for aborting a technological apocalypse for a low, low price to Brian Thomas Schmidt, Robin Wayne Bailey, Jack McDevitt, Jack Skillingstead, and Brenda Cooper. Editor and authors in Mission Tomorrow. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.